Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. Every technology brings implications with it, both from a threat perspective as well as a security perspective. I see two that within the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to fundamentally change how the security industry works. One, as you said, is generative AI, and two is quantum computing. And what both of those are going to do is they're going to reduce the attack time. Like, because right now when we think about like, how long does it take for an attack to go through, right? In 2015, the average breakout time for a criminal was nine hours and 30 minutes. 2022, the average breakout time was one hour and 24 minutes. And so what happens when generative AI and quantum computing are part of that equation? They get you to this point to where the time approaches zero. And so I think that's an interesting question, right? What happens when the time approaches zero? Hi, welcome to The Threat Show. My name is Darren Kimlin, VP of Technology here at Fletch. And back this week is my co-host, Chris Wilder, Research Director and Senior Analyst at Tag Cyber. Welcome back from RSA, Chris. Thanks, Darian. I'm, I'm actually at the two good things. One is I'm finally getting recovered and my liver not so much, but then my rugby team is going to the national championships this weekend. So pretty pretty psyched about the Austin Blacks to keep moving on. So it's, it's a good week. Awesome. That's great to hear. And joining us this week is also another Chris, Chris Camacho, Chief Strategy Officer at Flashpoint, a risk intelligence platform that delivers timely and actionable intelligence to enable security teams to rapidly identify threats, safeguard information, and remediate threats to protect their organization's assets. Chris has led initiatives across operational strategy, incident response, threat management, and security operations teams to ensure cyber risk posture aligns with their business goals. Chris is also president of Ninja Jobs, a hiring platform focused on cybersecurity industries and an official member of the Forbes Technology Council. He's had over 15 years of cybersecurity leadership experience, including running security operations for several financial services institutions like the World Bank, Bank of America, where he oversaw their threat management platform. Welcome to the show, Chris Camacho. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here, Darren and Chris. Likewise. And also, we're fortunate enough to have your colleagues join us as well. Jason Rivera, 16 years in the threat intelligence analyst industry, working at past companies like Deloitte and CrowdStrike, and is now executive director of partnerships over at Flashpoint. Welcome to the show as well, Jason. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Darian. So I'm curious, now that RSA is over and you guys were there, what were the, you know, kind of standout themes this year or emerging technologies that seem to be dominating the floor over at RSA? I'm curious. It was so fascinating to see that the majority of the meetings I sat in were in and around artificial intelligence, AI. And it just surprised me how fast AI has moved into our space and what everybody wants or perceives to see from AI. The other thing that stood out to me was vendor consolidation and looking at all the vendors and what we can be doing in order to like bring many of these technologies together. So I think those are two themes I I had. Jason, what about you? Yeah, to kind of dovetail on what Chris was saying, when we think about it from a threat perspective, you know, the threat, it becomes more voluminous. So we're seeing more threats from an attack service perspective. They're getting faster and they're getting more sophisticated. So going to Chris's AI comment, you know, a lot of it's about how do we do all of this faster? How do we get help from the machine world in order to help us understand what's happening and then orchestrate actions to defend against it? And so certainly I would say that those were definitely key themes. From a consolidation perspective, we're continuing to see customers focus not only on consolidating their cybersecurity experience, but also consolidating their threat intelligence experience. Because when you think about speed, right, 
part of it is not having to go to 50 different platforms to try to do 50 different things. It's like, how can I do this in less platforms? And how can I have something like artificial intelligence that's going to help me with that process? So we can take, not necessarily take the human out of the loop, but assist the human and allow them to be able to respond to these more voluminous threats faster than they would without that tech enabling technology. No, GPT is the new black, I guess. It's, if you don't have GPT in your messaging anymore, it's, it's, I, I agree with you guys on the AI side of it. The other two areas that I spent a lot of time with was very specifically software supply chain and how the CISO is having to actually start working with DevOps, the DevOps having to work with the CISO in terms of making the CICD, you know, the continuous development process more effective. So I, it's nice to see that we're starting to get security at the front end of these projects. And so there's a lot of companies that are out there that really stepping up guys like reversing labs and uh, 42 crunch. And some of those guys that are taking it on there. I mean, Gary and you and I talk a lot about in this show about open source, you know, secrets and all the bad things that are out there. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies out there that are dealing with that. And then there's in the wake of the DOD, that dopey kid who the reservist who went off and decided to go ahead and give his, give his friends on discord. You know, <laughs> All the briefing reports for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a lot of conversations there. And that kind of went back to more on the cloud security side, as well as specifically around data. And so there's there's a lot of renewed interest in kind of not just data security, but data policy vis-a-vis retention and purging specifically. And then the security side is a little bit more apt there. And then threat intelligence, threat intelligence, threat intelligence. I mean, who would thought that cyber reasons valuation would drop? By <laughs> half yeah, that was a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> And and I think a lot of that has to do with the XDR guys. Some are embracing threat intelligence and building their own telemetry, while others are kind of running down the SOAR avenue. And that was that was very relevant. I think the the ones that are chasing after SOAR, I think, are the ones that are not having a good day. And Cyber Reason is just another example of a dead unicorn. Well, it's sound. I think we're going to see a lot more consolidation in the next couple of quarters, especially as we kind of weather the storm. Well, you know, we'll be talking with Chris and Jason more about cybersecurity challenges and issues in the financial services sector, especially around small, medium-sized businesses shortly. But I think first, let's check in on this week's threat landscapes and trending threats. So in terms of what we have seen for the past week, we actually saw a bit of a downshift, about four less major threats for the past 30 days. And that's probably attributed to not just the fact that there is just less activity, it's just the existing activity that we've monitored seems to be transitioning from emerging to trending and mainstream. I'm curious, Wilder, if you're seeing the same type of activity on your end. I am. I, I could say something silly like, yeah, they were just getting ready for RSA. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to, that's blackout. But I think this is just consistent with everything that we've talked about. Yeah, fair enough. And when we dig into the details, we see most of the activity is not really that there's new emerging threats. It's more like the existing stuff seems to be gaining more attention across different media outlets. And we saw about nine different topics or themes start to retire, meaning we haven't seen any new activity related to them in the past 30 days, effectively. But when we talk about the types of interesting threats for the week, we actually have a number of different vulnerabilities that have come out related to virtualization, as well as small, medium-sized business print platforms, which is kind of bizarre, but I guess expected, as well as some new evasion techniques that have been attributed to nation-state threat groups. And then lastly, we found that there's an older cyber criminal technique that's been refreshed which we'll get into more details. But first, 
with the latest research that happened at the latest Pwn to Own conference, there's actually a new round of virtualization breakout vulnerabilities discovered within the VMware platform, specifically targeting VMware Workstation and Fusion that basically allow an attacker, if they've got access inside a VM, guest level access, they can break out into the host environment, which is considered bad. Now, this type of theme of vulnerability used to be very rare five, eight years ago, but it's actually become more mainstream nowadays. And, you know, for anyone who's in small, medium-sized businesses and security operations, who's looking to try to load up a sketchy PDF or a binary inside a VM and think that they're safe, that's probably no longer the case. And you might want to outsource that stuff to an actual proper sandboxing service. Yeah, the guys at HP Wolf do a pretty good job of dealing with this when they acquired Bromium a long time ago. But now this one kind of popped up that was, I thought it was interesting because Bromium, typically, if you have a sketchy PDF, you open it up and in the, in, in the, it opens up its own VM, it allows the ransomware to call home and do its thing, but you close it and it's gone. And so then right. it cleans up the sketchy file. But this was one of those things I haven't ch- had a chance to talk with, with the guys over there yet, but this is something that is going to be alerting for them. And VMware is just right now, they're struggling, especially on the security side, because it's not so much that they're insecure, but it's that Broadcom is not helping them any. So I think they become just a much larger target. Fair enough. And moving on to our next threat, there's actually a brand new type of technique discovered by Trend Micro, specifically focusing on APT41, which was a Chinese-based nation-state threat group targeting the Philippines, Taiwan, and and Thailand. So not necessarily US-based, but what was interesting about this particular malware wasn't necessarily the techniques to gain access to the, I think it was the vulnerable Microsoft Exchange or IS servers that were running on the internet. I mean, that's it's a whole nother thing. But once the attackers were in and deployed some sort of web shell to gain access to these servers, then when they deployed like stack second and third stage malware, the malware proceeded to, as typical, try to disable or turn off or terminate any sort of security software on these Windows systems. And that's pretty common. Again, not surprising. But what was surprising is just the methodology that they're using to prevent the security software from starting back up again. (laughs) So they're calling this stack rumbling, which is basically a way to force all of this security software running on these vulnerable systems to constantly be disabled. Because again, it's an arms race, right? Between the defenders and the attackers. So when an attacker turns off, you know, let's say Windows Defender and they proceed to detect that activity, there's usually some sort of recovery logic where the EDR product or the AV product would try to start up again and recover. But in this case, what the attackers are doing is they're instructing the Windows system to say, well, every time the security software starts up again, allocate gigabytes or terabytes of RAM. And so when Windows tries to do that as part of their registry key that the attackers change, well, the operating system says, look, I can't allocate that much memory. And so the security software dies again. So effectively, the evidence you see if you're a defender is just constant logging of processes failing to start up because there's no memory available. So this type of technique is brand new. It was discovered by Trend Micro recently, but 
Why is this important for small, medium-sized businesses? It could be because these are the types of techniques that are likely to be used and adopted by cyber criminal elements six, yeah. nine, 12 months later. So the fact that we're seeing it now does not mean that this is the end of it. It's likely the beginning of it. Yeah, this is just the next evolution of, I don't know if you remember the the, the, the big MBR attacks, master boot record attacks. They would go in and change the MBR and they would mm -hmm. just start up running different processes. But I think this is just the next evolution to that. And we're even seeing this on the hardware side too, with them doing something very similar in, in BMCs on, on hardware, especially on RAN and edge devices where they're they're getting into those used to be impenetrable. They would say that they're unhackable, but now they're not. And so it's just a very sophisticated way to do something old and tried and true. So exactly. And on the cyber criminal side of the house, we've actually seen now a brand new type of vulnerability. I guess people would call it death by a thousand paper cuts. There's actually a very common popular piece of software used by small, medium-sized businesses to manage printing, centralized printing. If you've got a bunch of HP, Lexmark, or other types of multifunction printers and you want to manage them at scale, you can use the software called Papercut to do that. Unfortunately, though, the central print management software, Papercut, actually has a set of zero-day vulnerabilities related to that, which have been exploited by the CLOP ransomware group for the past 30 days at least. And because these print servers were directly internet accessible, for that matter, they've been used to load up virtual currency or cryptocurrency mining operations on these servers, which is then used to essentially steal money for these particular threat groups. CLOP is attributed to FIN11 and TA505, and they've had a history of using many different zero-day vulnerabilities and weaponizing them either weeks before or weeks after discovery. So this is kind of aligned with their motive. And it's likely they're going to continue to abuse this. At least that's what Microsoft's saying until these particular servers get patched. And again, it goes back to that theme of who would normally want to patch a print server and keep it up to date, right? This is all IT stuff that usually gets not really a whole lot of attention ever, right? Once you set it and forget it and walk away, you don't bother patching it. Well, this is generally what happens. Yeah. Similar I mean to what you're talking about. Yeah. How many times have we talked about printer security on this show? Jeez. I know. And it just keeps getting worse. I think the Lexmark one was just because of the fact that they had effectively zero firmware in their in their systems. And But printers, when I did a lot of red teaming, the first place I would go, especially when we were doing a physical attack to try to get into the organization from inside the organization, simulating an insider threat, printers were the first place I would always go because you typically don't put a lot of security around it. Plus, printers are typically not monitored, managed, and run by security people. It's IT. Mm -hmm. And in most right. cases, especially when you kind of go downstream to some of these smaller, mid-sized companies, it's not even IT. It's the receptionist, or it's somebody within the organization that has some level modicum of technical skills. That's that's who runs this. So you're right, Darian. They don't think about patching print servers. It's, it's an easy target. This is a big scary that uh, I know all the big OEM guys that, that I work with on the print side, they're scared to death of it. It's is way beyond the old, what is it, prim or print? The, remember those, uh, you can get the print attacks and then, the, yeah, but that that was, this is way different. But it's 2023. Who prints these days, right? Turns uh, out it's still critical to small, medium-sized businesses. That's the conversation I have with the print guys. They're like, oh my God, we have two to three years left. So how can we change? 
Fair enough. Fair enough. And the last threat on our list for this week is actually digging further into TA505. Specifically, it turns out that the Elastic Security Labs team uncovered a brand new type of malware attributed to this Russian cyber criminal group called Lobshot. Now, the actual techniques that this particular cyber criminal group is using to go after victims, specifically end users, not so much enterprises, is pretty common, right? They try to basically pollute Google Ads search results to get people to install what they think is legitimate software. And then in the course of installing the software, malware hitches a ride and ultimately compromises the user's system. So that part is not necessarily new. That technique's been around for a while. But what is new about this particular malware is that it's using a brand new variant of an old technique called hidden virtual computing, virtual network computing. And the underlying capability has been around since I think the early Zeus days. I mean, if we look at for the research, there was activity related to this type of technique back many years ago when all you needed to be able to conduct a fraudulent transaction at a local bank was the user's login name and password, right? So they would use techniques like e-loggers and form grabbers to accomplish that. And then as financial institutions started rolling out risk-based authentication, they started to look at things like, well, where did you come from, right? If you're normally doing your banking in, let's say, Tennessee, but we see activity coming from Syria, we're going to block it. So then the attackers would load up a proxy server on the victim's computer to basically proxy all traffic through their legitimate computer to, again, make it look legitimate. Well, now that type of risk-based authentication is now more sophisticated where, no, you actually need the fingerprint of the user's browser to be able to successfully conduct an online financial transaction. And that's really where HVNC comes into play. So it's literally designed to spin up a virtual desktop that mimics the user's environment completely parallel to the users. They don't see that desktop environment. And then the attacker can basically go in hands-on keyboard and screen to be able to manipulate the user's browser into visiting these websites, conducting all these financial transactions using the same fingerprinting. So it looks almost identical as if the user were conducting these transactions. Now, thankfully, it seems like the majority of this malware seems to be going after cryptocurrency wallets, like 50 yeah. different flavors of, of wallets, right? But it's very easy to see how this same type of technology can be used to go after anyone's legitimate banking account. It's kind of shocking. And from the level of sophistication we're seeing here, it's kind of makes you wonder, can anyone legitimately manage cryptocurrency without dealing with these sorts of threats? Or is this type of activity going to end up causing people not to want to do any cryptocurrency transactions just because the risk is too high? I'm curious your thoughts here, Welder. <laughs> I was going to say two things. One is you dated yourself when you talked about Zeus. <laughs> no. Yeah. Fair. Uh, second, secondly, and I'm really proud of you because you went through that entire homage without mentioning Chromium Zero Day, which... Uh, <laughs> Whole another challenge. Nonetheless, I'm not a huge fan of kind of the whole secure browser industry or specifically, obviously, browser isolation. But secure browsers like Island and Talon actually are doing a pretty good job. But they'll stop pretty much any of these types of attacks. And I think consumers and users typically think that if they open up their browser, they're safe. And, the, you know, whatever they download is going to be, they just don't know. And so that propagates these types of attacks. 
I, I don't know, it's education, hygiene, all the above, but I'm a big believer in that if you're doing anything with crypto, you're doing anything, you're downloading stuff off the internet, whether it's on the dark web or wherever, at least use a, a secure browser. Tor browser is actually not so bad, but yeah, use right. a secure browser. And, and I'm not saying you'll you'll be protected. I would never say that because these guys are smarter than us sometimes. Right. But I think it's just, you know, just a matter of just common sense. But yeah, this is really sophisticated and ugly. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Jason, from your perspective, are you seeing kind of a trend of cyber criminal elements starting to go after more and more cryptocurrency wallets just because it's like low hanging fruits and most people just don't know how to conduct these transactions in a secure manner? Yeah, I mean, criminals tend to take the path of least resistance, depending on like what is the opportunity of the day, as well as their capability to actually engage certain types of opportunities. So like if I were to kind of like characterize over the last, like, let's say like three years, right? Like what is one of the major changes that we're seeing? Instead of these like consolidated groups, we're seeing these islands of specialty. So for example, some specialized malware developers, some who are specialized in networked operations, some who are just access brokers, and all they do is facilitate access, you know, so on and so forth, right? And when you think about that from a business model perspective, what it allows them to do is to combine efforts and do joint operations in a way that's much more flexible than how we defend, right? Because like when you think about your SOC, your SOC is who your SOC is. You're not going to trade people out randomly to suddenly deal with new threats. You kind of got the team you got, right? The criminals sure. that are, oh yeah, no, they, they can trade out whoever they want, depending on the operation. On top of all of that now, right? They can not only trade out and have the best team at any given time, but they also get the first mover advantage. They get to decide when and where they're going to engage in these attacks, right? And so we see a lot of this kind of thing, particularly within the cryptocurrency space. And honestly, I wouldn't just limit it to criminals. North Korea is the, the, the king of cryptocurrency theft. I'm just thinking about like a bunch of the attacks we saw last year, like to the tunes of like millions upon millions of dollars. There was one in was either South Korea or Japan, but like they stole over a hundred million dollars from a single exchange. And wow. so when you think about it from like a criminal perspective or like a North Korean regime perspective, both of these are illicit economies. You know, obviously criminality is an illicit economy in of itself. But then sure. when you have these isolated regimes like North Korea, like, yeah, $100 million, ooh, that's a major source of income, right? Especially when the entire world is sanctioning you. And so I think we'll see it for the foreseeable future. The cryptocurrency price is a factor in all this, right? Because, you know, the higher the cryptocurrency price, okay, the bigger the payoff, right? The lower it is, right. maybe I'll go do something else. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of factors that kind of weigh into it. Yeah, it makes sense. So that wraps up kind of our threats for the week. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk with both Jason and Chris about their thoughts regarding just the general trends that we've been seeing related to the financial services industry as we've seen some of the fallout related to, I think a couple of months ago was SVB and the banking bailouts and a lot of the turmoil involved there. And how is that affecting small and medium-sized businesses concern regarding not only their financial health, but their cybersecurity health during these turbulent times? I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts. It's interesting to see what this banking turmoil has caused in some of our financial sector and services customers. Some of those that are consolidating, you know, we're working with closely as they're trying to absorb the risk and try to figure out like what they're inheriting, right? Some of those mm -hmm. that are in those mid tiers and are worried about what could happen to them are also concerned about the risks and, you know, what they can do to obviously protect not only themselves, the company, but also the customers. So it's all over the place, interestingly enough. And then you have the mega banks that are probably well stabilized, right? And just trying to figure out how this all lands and really how they can probably take advantage of it or how it can benefit them, but also worried about what regulatory changes this brings, you know, compliance changes, right? Oversight that's going to happen. But usually banks are smart enough to figure out how to take advantage of those to in security space 
open up new budgets for more monitoring, more you know enhancements, updating of systems, updating of technology. So they're smart to that side. But at the same time, what I'm also seeing is a lot of collaboration, right? So the big banks are really trying to help within security, all the other, both regional credit unions and mega banks, right? They're sharing information. Like, what are we seeing? What are you seeing? That's always happened, but I'm picking up that it's happening more than ever right now. Take away the competitive aspect and they're all sharing security threats across the board because what one bank sees, usually the other see, it's just a matter of who sees it first and what they can do to protect themselves. What are you seeing, Jason? Yeah, at a, more, at a more tactical level, I think criminals have this tendency to play off their victim's sense of urgency. And so when we think about something like a banking failure or even COVID-19 or election fraud, the Olympics, whatever it may be, right? It's a, There's this opportunistic element for how criminals think. And unfortunately, it tends to be like the smaller medium businesses that are the ones that are fall victim to this the most because they have the least amount of capabilities to actually defend against it. But like one way to think of it is like when we really go into these like emotional factors, right? Like what are these criminals typically doing? First, there is a fear element. There is, again, the COVID, you're going to lose your money or that, you know, whatever it may be, right? But there's also a time element. Do this now or by this date, this thing happens, right? So it's not only the fear, but then they're playing with your perception of time. I'm wanting you to respond fast. Like I remember there's an actor that I don't know the mandate name for him, but they're they're called Wizard Spider. That's another name they go by. They're uses sure. the Ryuk and the Conti ransomware. And they had right. something called Bizarre Call. And li- literally what they would do is they would send emails to different users trying to get them to call back to Bizarre Call, like literally a phone call. And it would be something along the lines of like, hey, your Amazon Super Plus premium account is going to renew for a thousand dollars this Friday. <laughs> If you don't want to renew it, please call this number and we can help you out. And, you know, you're as a user, you're like, oh, no, I, I don't want that. What? I'm going to pay a thousand dollars. But yeah, it's, it's that emotional element. Right. And I think like particularly with phishing and those kind of things, you know, they, they kind of they get through our defenses. Right. They get directly to the user and it allows that actor to really play with emotion. So, yeah, that's always a tough one. Yeah, the human element is always so difficult to control in these scenarios, right? I mean, most small, medium-sized businesses have to move quickly, right? It's part of their DNA of, of how they operate. And it's like you're having to kind of temper that with some understanding of, hey, there's some new current event. All right, there's bound to be criminal elements trying to take advantage of that send you notifications and then you have to sift through what's real and what's fake and that's always a challenge regardless um, yeah i think a rule of thumb that i always like talk to honestly my coworkers about it, even my family it's the notion of who's reaching out to who if somebody right. is making contact with you why whether they're coming up to you on the street or sending you an email or calling you somebody making first contact with you should always be like oh what is this are you is it really you know what i mean and so, yeah, I think a lot of it's just user awareness and kind of the human element to your point. Yeah. You know, the, the sad part about this is my in-laws, their job description is called victim. And they <laughs> they get these phone calls all the time. And it's gotten to the point where I actually look at their emails and I look at the who's calling them because they've spent probably twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on just taking these dumb calls. And they give away, especially especially around Amazon. I think you're spot on with that one, Jason. And I think they've actually probably gotten that one. And so the elderly and the vulnerable people in society are the ones who make the payrolls on this. One of the other sad challenges is veterans are a big target right now. And so a lot of folks come home and they've served in the military. Maybe their wife left them and they're lonely and they're trying to kind of get back on their feet. They're incredibly vulnerable. And typically we've seen just kind of the work that I do with transitioning veterans is almost an increase in the number of suicides or suicide attempts from guys that are being hoodwinked by 
I love you so much. Send me $60,000 and we'll make our dreams come true. Those are the other kinds. Of, and you're right, Jason. They feed on the emotion. I don't know how to fix it. Do it one guy or gal at a time. But we've got to be better at educating people. And the banking thing is all, you know, the only guys that are staying awake at night are venture capitalists and, and these banking crashes. And so and they really are. I'll, I'll keep it going, but I, I'm sorry. I'll step off my soapbox. No, no, no. I mean, I think, you know, this type of theme is almost evergreen, right? It's always going to happen. It's going to continue in the future. It's kind of scary because we're at an inflection point now where we mentioned that generative AI was a, a concept and a topic that caught fire at RSA. But that technology can also be used by attackers, right, to create pretty sophisticated either phishing or luring schemes to kind of basically go after people that don't necessarily even stand a chance, let alone can dissect and understand what exactly is going on, right? So I'm curious, you know, Jason, from your perspective, do you see generative AI being kind of a double-edged sword here? You know, it might help on the defensive measures, but it's like attackers also have, in some cases, first mover advantage. Yeah, I mean, every technology brings implications with it, both from a threat perspective as well as a security perspective. I see, too, that within the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to fundamentally change how the security industry works. One, as you said, is generative AI, and two is quantum computing. And what both of those are going to do is they're going to reduce the attack time. Like, Because right now, when we think about like how long does it take for an attack to go through, right? One way to measure it would be this thing called breakout time. So breakout time is how long it takes the adversary once they gain access to move laterally. In 2018, the average breakout time for a criminal was nine hours and 30 minutes. 2022, the average breakout time was one hour and 24 minutes. And wow. so what happens when generative AI and quantum computing are a part of that equation? What happens when generative AI is not only helping you query data, but also helping you find the most efficient route of attack? What happens when quantum computing is breaking encryption instantly? And what both of those things end up doing is they get you to this point to where the time approaches zero. And so I think that's an interesting question, right? What happens when the time approaches zero? Well, then in that case, and this is where my good friend Sun Tzu comes into play, right? All battles are won or lost before they are ever fought. And that particularly holds true when the time of an attack approaches zero, right? Which means that your strategy and how you think about the situation, the decisions that you make to prepare your security stack, how you're consuming intelligence, all of that matters, right? Because eventually with these technologies, the human will get out of the equation. The human will manage the process. But by the time it's happening, there is no response anymore. You either made the right decision or you didn't. And so if I were to sum it up, I think that's kind of how it's going to change, right? I, I Honestly, 10 years, and it might be less, but yeah, it'll, it'll come down to decision-making and, and less about like, how am I responding and how quickly, like, like yeah, no, generative AI is going to kind of make all that go extinct. Wow. So yeah, just keeping the Sunsu theme here, as defenders, we have to get where the enemy's not. And that's going to be the challenge, especially as quantum wakes up. And I think I'm saying five years on quantum and that's on the outside because there's a lot of, lot of innovation going into it. Unfortunately, we're not doing much in the U S in terms of defense. So we're really just trying to figure out what's coming. I'm right there with you, brother. I saw yeah. a presentation recently on quantum to financial services, actually, where they said five years is where we'll be at. Yeah. So it's right in line with your thinking as well. Wow. Yeah, I think the hard part with both these technologies is, again, like these games where the time is approaching zero, but then also there's this notion of proliferation, right? Yeah. So if we were to compare proliferation from the cyber security industry over to like the conventional warfare world, 
Yeah, let's take like a nuclear weapon, right? Yes, a nuclear weapon is a highly threatening thing, but to proliferate a nuclear weapon, that is a monumental task to proliferate chemical weapons and, you know, aircraft, so on and so forth. But what about a cyber weapon? How hard is it to proliferate malware? Clearly not that hard. How hard is it for zero day vulnerabilities to be exploited by either Chinese APT threat actors or even your common criminal groups? Not that hard, right? And so the question I ask myself with both whether it's quantum computing or generative AI is what is that proliferation going to look like? What is going to be the amount of time between like when, you know, because right now it's pretty much you got ChatGPT, you got Google, and then you got Microsoft, right? They're kind of the big mm -hmm. names. But how long will it take before that technology is also readily available to our nation state adversaries, as well as the criminal groups, right? And so I, I think that's the other concerning element as well, is I don't think it's going to be that long. I think the time window is pretty short. Well, Alibaba just released their own version of GPT-2, so that's a little concerning. There it is. It's happening. <laughs> and there it happens. <laughs> Wow. So like generative AI could effectively lower the barrier for all these different criminal elements to operate. And suddenly it becomes less important that it's a nation state going after your organization versus a criminal element because they all have the same capabilities and the same tools at the end of the day. It's, it's kind of scary. But I think in the near term, we're kind of seeing an inflection point with all these different use cases. And it's exciting, but it's scary at the same time. It'll be interesting for the next, I think, three to six to nine months as to how that actually manifests within the actual attacks that we see over this time to see if they're getting better, if they're using and abusing these tools in really weird or interesting ways. I'm curious, from a defensive standpoint, is there anything that we can do <laughs> to prepare now that we we know the train's coming? Is it possible to get off the track before it hits us? I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, Camacho. Chris, I would add to that, what's keeping your customers awake at night? Because you guys do something very specific. Yeah. It is specific. It's become more generalized, too, because our customers demand it, right? So when we first started, we were deep in dark web, but now we've expanded because the threats have expanded. So we're actually trying to support multiple disciplines for what you just said, Darren. It's like the attacks are coming from all over the place, right? Whether it's vulnerabilities, whether it's power, whether it's social engineering, or even physical attacks. And at the end of the day, no matter how much any company spends on cybersecurity and awareness, it's always that human factor. I'm aware of an attack happening to someone pretty high profile just started by a phone call, right? They just got wow. to the right person at a help desk. And from there, they got an MFA token and the rest is kind of history. And although they had spent so much money on threat intelligence and network controls and endpoint controls and all this fancy stuff, that's the problem here. It's like the human side of things is like you said earlier, right? What's always going to lead to some of these attacks. And it's always going to be this cat and mouse game, right? The adversary is going to shift their focus. They're going to change their attacks. And then network defenders and responders are going to be doing the same. And to be honest, I think, as we all know, that's why we remain employed and what we do, what we do. But at the same time, you know, that's why the CISOs, they literally can't sleep at night. I know we ask them all the time, like, what keeps you up at night? And it's these emerging threats. No matter what they do or how much they spend or how good their team is on a given day, that next day, things just change so rapidly. And that's what they worry about. And then you right. talk about the human side of fatigue. If they're dealing with an event or an incident and they get past that one, but that next one comes two days later, but their team is like, fatigued, things will get missed. And those are the, the sides that most people forget about, right? They can buy all these emerging technologies. They can buy the latest and fanciest things. They can get into some even niche tools and, and vendors, but it's never enough. 
Right. And a good element here, which is actually quite timely, is the web authn standard has been undergoing major changes. And I think most recently, the common terminology for authenticating that a lot of vendors have been pushing for is this concept of pass keys, right? It's supposed to retire credentials, login names, and passwords. And I think Google just announced that they rolled out passkey support for all their you know, commercial Gmail users, which is a pretty significant milestone. And we're starting to see a larger inflection point there. It's funny because a lot of people are heralding that as like, okay, this is the death of phishing. This is the death of all these different types of attacks. And the reality is, I think you're just kind of raising the bar maybe a little bit, but to your point, there's still going to be a human factor element. Someone will still inadvertently send a pass key over to an attacker through some form of phishing. It's not going to go away. It's just, it's going to look different, right? So it's interesting how this theme, regardless of what technology, how much technology you throw at the problem, unless you address and try to manage the human factor element of it, you're still always going to have that degree of insecurity involved. It might keep us in a job for the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years maybe, but I think it's worth reiterating over and over again because it's it's never going to go away. Well, this has been great. I think that's all the time we have for this discussion today. Thank you both very much for your time. Jason and Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. To our audience, please let us know if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us in future shows, please DM us at The Threat Show. We'll see you again next week for another round of interesting threats of the week. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.